Welcome to The Safety Plan, the show where I cover the latest cyber scam and how to avoid it on LCC Connect, Voices, Vibes, Vision. I'm Paul Schwartz, and I'm happy that you are here. Let's do this. This morning, my daughter was singing Dreaming of You by Selena, and now the song is stuck in my head. I guarantee you've heard of it. Late at night when all the world is sleeping, I stay up and think of you. And I wish on a star that somewhere you are thinking of me too. Because I'm dreaming of you tonight till tomorrow. And so on and so on. But my kid was singing with, you know, cybersecurity words. Because I'm dreaming of scams tonight till tomorrow. I'll be holding the criminals at bay. And there's nowhere in the world I'd rather be. Jeez, <laughs> oh, you know, obviously the college has allowed me budgetless artistic freedom on the show, and I will take advantage of that position. So welcome to the safety plan. Here's the format. First, I will describe a real world cyber scam like phishing or malware or the IRS imposter scam or scareware or one of the other many other cyber scams. And I will then explain why it could happen to you. And finally, how to protect yourself so it doesn't happen to you. So why should you listen to the safety plan episodes? First, as a leader, I want to share my cybersecurity knowledge with you so that you can hopefully learn and grow and become inspired by it. Second, a community knowledgeable on cyber scams will not fall for them in the future. And third, if people start practicing good cyber practices in their lives and at home, then they practice those same skills at work, which makes your company or business or local community college more secure. Win, win, win. Okay. So I'm Paul Schwartz. I work at LCC as the Director of Information Security. I coordinate security issues for the college, things like investigations and vulnerability scanning of our network and implementing projects to improve the college's security and training users on cybersecurity. I've worked in cybersecurity for 27 years, including 20 years in the Air Force, before ending up at LCC. I show up to work sober and with my pants on, so people think I know stuff, which proves I am smart. SMRT smart. Now, it's time for the cybersecurity roundup. Let's focus on today's topic, cyber hygiene. Cyber hygiene is the establishment and maintenance of an individual's online safety. It is the online analog of personal hygiene and encapsulates the daily routines, occasional checks, and general behaviors required to maintain a user's online health or security in this case. And so why should you have good cyber hygiene? In today's high-tech environment, organizations are becoming more and more dependent on their information systems. The public is increasingly concerned about the proper use of information, particularly personal data. The threats to information systems from criminals and terrorists are increasing, and many organizations will identify information as an area of their operation that needs to be protected as part of their system of internal control. So what do you have that someone would want? So bad guys want your information, your social security number, your credit card number, your driver's license numbers, your birth dates, your passport numbers, your financial accounts, your balances, your bank account information. They want access to your systems also so they can then launch other attacks from your resources and they also want your company's intellectual property you know those those secret formulas to to the products that uh, your company makes because you have this valuable information i need you to do some basic cyber hygiene measures to protect yourself to keep yourself from not being the low-hanging fruit where attackers pick on you and steal your information so here's the first thing on cyber hygiene that i need you to do 
Password or pin or thumbprint protect your devices. Okay, so you have these, you know, let's say a laptop or a smartphone. If a criminal were to get a hold of it, say you left it on the train or in a cab, which we've had employees at our college that have done this, the criminal will open the thing up and turn the power on. And if they're able to just get right into the device, that would be really bad because they would have immediate access to your data. So if you password pin and thumbprint it, that will be at least one level of security. Well, they'll need some more information to get further into the device. Now, the second thing on cyber security hygiene is to encrypt your device. So on um, with PCs, they have BitLocker, and on Macs, they have FileVault. And on your smartphones, it tends to be nowadays where it's automatically encrypted. But sometimes you have to turn it on. So encryption on the device, so let's say the criminal, again, gets a hold of that laptop that you've left on the train, opens it up, and, and it initially gives you that, you know, the initial PIN uh, they're able to get around that unless the rest of the device is encrypted. So this is scrambling the data you know, through software. So only if the person has the correct you know, password or PIN to get into it will it unscramble all the rest of the data. So if the criminal ha- gets a hold of it and it doesn't have that password or that PIN, it can't, the criminal won't be able to see any of the information on it because it's all encrypted. Now, third. The third step for cybersecurity hygiene is to install, use, and update antivirus and anti-spyware software on your device. So on PCs, typically you have a you know Windows 10 operating system, which comes with the free Windows Defender. On Macs, they don't have antivirus software by default installed, but you can get free AV software like Sophos Home or Avast antivirus. Uh, similarly, on smartphones, it's not a default load, but there's free antivirus that you can put in smartphones like Kaspersky's uh, mobile antivirus or Trend Micro mobile security or Malwarebytes mobile security. Some of these are free products that you can put. Um, So this antivirus is kind of basic level software that will detect when uh, malware or malicious software has been loaded on the device and will then quarantine it or delete it off um, the device. Now, the fourth thing uh, for computer security hygiene is to install the latest software updates. So make sure your web browsers and your browser plugins, as well as your operating systems and all your applications all have the most up-to-date software. And you can do that by you know, enabling you know, future automatic updates or um, visiting the websites to make sure the, the, the software is at the, the latest patched level. This is because criminals... When they do, um, you know, vulnerability scanning of your device, let and, and they can do that by you just visiting any malicious website. Um, it will immediately send communications to your device looking for flaws, looking for software that's not patched or up to date, and be able to leverage those gaps to take over your device. So that's the fourth thing that you should be doing to have good basic cyber hygiene. Now, the fifth thing is is to wipe your device before selling it or recycling it or donating it. And there's some websites if you Google, you know, how do I wipe my device for your PCs and your Macs or smartphones. But you want to delete all the content off your device before you give it away or sell it. Um, You know, so the person buying your device won't have access to that data. Okay, the next one is to remove unnecessary software on your devices. So you have 
applications, perhaps on your laptops or your smartphones that you're not using anymore and, and haven't for years to minimize your attack surface to hackers, you should delete all unnecessary software. And probably the unnecessary software hasn't been patched and has vulnerabilities that attackers can leverage. So remove all those by deleting unnecessary software. The next thing for basic cyber hygiene is to enable and configure a firewall. And on the PCs and, and the Macs, they have uh, firewall settings and you can search for them on your computer where you can enable the firewall. Now the firewall is another defense and depth layer of security and it prevents unnecessary traffic getting to the device and makes it, it would block unnecessary traffic and allow appropriate traffic. So another great security measure. And next, you should routinely, I'd say at least monthly, back up your data to external media, say a, a thumb drive or external hard drive. So you want to keep a copy of your files that you've backed up in a different location than your, say, your house or apartment. In case it burns down, you'll have those backed up. And if you store files on thumb drive or local hard drive and that gets infected with malware, then you have a way to recover those files if they're backed up. And finally, and this is maybe a bigger one, I need you to practice safe computing. So, for example, I, I don't want you opening unsolicited attachments or following you know, unsolicited links and email messages. You need to use caution when downloading files and browse wisely by you know, avoiding suspicious websites. And I want to get into this practice safe computing because this is kind of a large area of basic cyber hygiene. So the first part of that is recognition of phishing and email-borne malware threats. And uh, phishing was covered in episode one of this podcast, Don't Let Phishing Give You the Hook. But I want to go into it a little bit further here. Um, do you know that 91% of all hacking attacks begin with a phishing email? Fraudsters send fake emails or set up fake websites that mimic you know, your organization's sign-in pages or the signing pages of other trusted companies such as eBay and PayPal and Office 365. And they're trying to trick you into disclosing your username and password. The practice is called phishing, which is a play on the word phishing because the fraudster is phishing for your private account information. And other fraudsters are trying to get you to visit malicious websites or open a malware infected attachment. So once they gain access. They can use your personal information to commit identity theft. You know, charge your credit cards or empty your bank accounts and, you know, read your email, lock you out of your accounts by changing your password. They will take control of your computer and then start scanning the network and then perhaps join a botnet or sit and listen for your keyboard activity, wait for you to type in your passwords or your bank account details or your credit card numbers, and then steal those. So there's phishing red flags that, again, I covered in episode one, but in, in general, a phishing red flag should be if you're not expecting the email. That's the first one and most important one. You should really have your suspicions raised when you weren't expecting an email and you receive it. And let's say the email is sent by an unfamiliar sender with you know an unsolicited, uh, you know maybe an attachment or link. Or let's say the sender asks multiple times for you to open the attachment or the link. And then the link's you know, if you hover over them and you see where they're going, maybe they don't go to a, a familiar domain. You know, say FedEx sends you an email, but the domain is, you know, it's something you don't recognize, like, you know, malwaresite.com. You know, you, you should definitely not go to that. And if the emails contain poor or inconsistent grammar, it could be a red flag for a phishing email. Another 
sign of phishing emails is if the email is sent to you from a free email account, say Hotmail or Yahoo or Gmail. You know, legitimate businesses won't use free email accounts to contact you. Or and here's another big one: if there's no contact information in the email, so there's no way to call uh, or contact the sender to verify the email's legitimacy. Now, in the big picture, it's okay to open emails, but when you open attachments or links or enable macros or enable pictures to be downloaded in the email program or enter passwords that are provided in the email for an encrypted attachment on the email, these are all things that are red flags and could get your, you know, your computer or your device infected. Here's another kind of trickier, more in-depth phishing technique is when the criminals compromise an account and then hijack the conversation. So they go through and look at the emails and then start responding to some of the emails in the compromised account. And hackers do this because they see a jump from 16% response to about 75% response when the attackers use an existing communications um, in in an email. And so that's really increases their chances of infecting you and getting you to provide personal information. Um, when, when we look at those links and those attachments, it's very important if you don't or weren't expecting them and find them to be suspicious to run them through a program like VirusTotal.com, which could scan through those links and attachments and let you know if they're safe. And the bottom line is when in doubt, throw it out. You should know not to open suspicious links in emails and tweets and posts and online ads and messages or attachments. So when in doubt, if you're suspicious, throw it out. Okay, the next step on practicing safe computing is to never send a social security number or credit card number via email. Okay, first, social security numbers and credit card numbers, these are personal identifiable information. It can be used to steal, you know, your identity. And if if stolen, the criminal could, you know, take out loans or start a loan, you know, get a driver's license, file a bogus tax return. All right, the second thing with emails is that they are unencrypted. So anyone with an ac- with access to any spot on that email's path can load, you know, a free sniffer and capture all the information. So this means that you should assume your email is being searched and saved by the bad guys. It's the equivalent of entering your social security number or credit card number into an unencrypted HTTP website. Or how about this? It's the equivalent of mailing your information on a postcard. So when you put your social security number or credit card number in an email, think of it as mailing a postcard and you're writing it on there and dropping it in the post office box and anyone can see it. Uh, after it's picked up. There are a number of solutions to minimize the risk of sending social security numbers and credit card numbers. You know, you could do it snail mail, you know, or hand delivery, or even fax are better options with lower chances of exposure to criminals. If you must email the information, here's a few options. So you could put the information in a you know, in a Microsoft Word or Excel spreadsheet and then encrypt those and then email the encrypted documents and then follow it up with a separate channel and sending the password to the recipient. You could also use a program like a free, uh, you know, file encryption tool like 7-Zip to do that same encryption. But you want to separate, you know, the the confidential information encrypted from the password and then pass those both to to the recipient. Now, another bad practice of cyber security hygiene is password reuse. 
And to combat that, you need to use a password manager. And this was covered in a previous password episode of mine. So more than 60% of people reuse the same password for everything. And I bet you, you probably reuse your password between your work, your bank, your home email, your credit card. That's not, not a great idea. Once a hacker gets a hold of one of the breached accounts, they run a five-second script to try your password against all major banks and credit cards and social media accounts and so forth to see if they can further steal your info and your sweet, sweet money. But how do you remember hundreds of unique passwords. Well, the good thing is I'm going to go with good, better, best. So this is increasingly going to be more appropriate. The first one, you could write down your passwords on a piece of paper and save it in a locked office drawer, you know, when unattended. So you write them down. That's the a good thing to remember hundreds of unique passwords. A better way would be to keep your passwords uh, on, you know, in a, in a, say a Microsoft Word document or Excel spreadsheet, and then save those to your computer or a thumb drive. And then for, for Word and for Excel, you can enable encryption and password protection by doing that file, info, protect work document or, or workbook. And then when you open up the file, it'll ask you for that password and then decrypt that file. So that's a good, very simple password manager. It's just a Microsoft Word document that's been encrypted. The best way is to use a specific password manager program. And there are free ones out there um, that's made to store passwords. Uh, uh, one free one I recommend is KeePass. Um, it's, it's available at keypass.info. And that way, this program stores all your programs. It's encrypted and you use one password to get into the password manager. And then that way you can store hundreds of unique passwords without remembering them. They're all written down. You just go open up the password manager when you need to reference that password. Okay, the next thing on cyber hygiene is physical security. So mobile devices like laptops and smartphones are the ones that are very often the target of thieves not only because they want to resell the device but also because they know the data on those devices can be far more valuable so here's a couple of tips on how to protect a mobile device mobile devices should never be left you know unattended or even in a car because thieves can see those through the windows and you know bash out the windows and take the mobile device so they should never be left unattended in public places like conferences or you know airports restrooms public transportation and so forth the devices should be kept with you the whole time or stored in a facility with no public access such as a room in an office and that's locked when, when no one is present Next on physical security is never pick up a USB device that's, you know, that's unfamiliar to you, such as laying in a parking lot or just mail to you randomly in the mail and then connect them to the computer. Criminals are known to put malware on those devices. And as soon as you connect them to the computer, it spreads the malware and infects your device. They did a study, uh, some security researchers did, I think at the University of Illinois, where they dropped USBs in the parking lot and 45% of those USBs were found and plugged into computers and continued the infection. So if you come across a USB that's, you know, unfamiliar to you, you can use a computer that has been backed up insert the USB and then run a antivirus scan on that USB to make sure it's clean before you use that USB any further. Now, the next thing on 
good cyber hygiene is to be suspicious of public Wi-Fi. You probably assume that your, you know, your local coffee shop is responsible for the security of their Wi-Fi. Well, this is wrong. Your coffee shop is merely providing free Wi-Fi to get you into the store and drinking their delicious peppermint white chocolate mocha. The big thing there is that you need to be responsible for security. It's not the coffee shops or someone else's job for your cybersecurity. You need to be responsible for it. And so you need to know how to protect yourself from it. So first, 89% of all public hotspots are insecure. And this means that someone who knows what he or she is doing could use a, you know, a sniffer to gain access to the information sent through wireless connections that you've established. So if you find yourself in a coffee shop or doctor's office or wherever Wanting to join the free Wi-Fi, I recommend you do these things. Assume all Wi-Fi networks are suspicious. So you need to verify the Wi-Fi name with the office or restaurant that's providing it. Never leave your device unattended, not even for a moment. You may come back and see your computer where you left it, but a thief may have installed a keylogger onto it to capture your keystrokes. And you should only use public Wi-Fi for quick browses only, such as, you know, wikis or Googles. Do not email messages of sensitive or serious nature while connected to public Wi-Fi and, and do not ever file share. And if you must log into a website, make sure it's secure, you know, with that HTTPS uh, throughout the, the browser session. And if available, use two-factor authentication for the login and the password access to sites with confidential info. Okay, the final thing I want to cover is kind of a large one, but it's on social networking. And here's some stats that I've just recently uncovered. 68% of people with public social media profiles share their birth dates. 18% share their phone numbers. 12% share their pets' names. And 63% share their high school names. Now, this is all personal, identifiable information that is that sometimes is used in password recovery security questions. So how much information do you share on social networking sites? A common way that hackers break into accounts is by clicking the forgot your password link on the account login page. And to break into your account, they search for answers to your security questions, such as your birthday, your hometown, your high school class, your pet's name, your mother's middle name. I bet you also reuse your security questions, much like password reuse between lots of internet sites. So if one of those sites gets compromised, then they have the answers to your security questions that you've, you've used at other sites. I recommend limiting the amount of personal information that you post or share. Do not post information that would make you vulnerable, such as your address, your phone number, your social security number, you know, other personal identifying information to include information about your schedule or your, or your routine. If your connections post information about you, make sure the combined information is not more than you would be comfortable with strangers knowing. Also, be considerate when posting information, including photos about your connections. So here's some kind of high-level social networking tips. Remember that the internet is public and permanent. Only post information you are comfortable with anyone seeing. This includes information and photos in your profile and blogs and other forums. Also, once you post information online, you can't retract it. Even if you remove the information from a site, saved or cached versions may still exist on other people's machines. Even if you delete the account, you don't know if someone has already printed or copied your text or photos off of it. The next thing is be wary of strangers. 
The internet makes it easy for people to misrepresent their identities and motives. Consider limiting the people who are allowed to contact you on these sites. If you interact with people you do not know, be cautious about the information you reveal or agree to meet them in person. Be skeptical. Don't believe everything you read online. People may post false or misleading information about various topics, including their own identities. This is not necessarily done with malicious intent. It could be unintentional, an exaggeration, or a joke. Take appropriate precautions, though, and try to verify the authenticity of any information before taking any action. Do you really know if a profile is real and not fake? If you suspect that a message is fraudulent, use an alternate method to contact your friend to find out. Only friend people you know in the real world. So you're only going to friend or connect with people you know in the real world. So evaluate your settings. Take advantage of a site's privacy settings. The default setting for some sites may allow anyone in your profile, but you can customize your settings to restrict access to only certain people. There is still a risk that private information could be exposed despite these restrictions, so don't post anything that you wouldn't want the public to see. Sites may change their options periodically, so review your settings and privacy settings regularly to make sure that your choices are still appropriate. All right, the next thing is to be wary of third-party applications. Now, these third-party applications may provide entertainment or functionality But use caution when deciding which applications to enable. Avoid applications that seem suspicious and modify your settings to limit the amount of information the applications can access. Okay, the next thing is to check the privacy policies and you could also turn off GPS functions on your smartphone camera. And finally, close old accounts that you don't use anymore. Now, I want to go a little bit into this. So don't risk leaving personal data in an old account, such as like a MySpace page you haven't used in years, or an online dating site you no longer need. Instead, close the accounts you don't use and delete as much personal information from them as possible. Well... That's a wrap of today's Safety Plan episode. If you have questions or have been a victim of CyberScam, please tell me about it by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu. Or you can find more info and past episodes of the Safety Plan at lcc.edu connect. This episode of the Safety Plan was recorded by Paul Schwartz in the TLC Tower in downtown Lansing Community College and produced by Lane Ingram and engineered by Big D today. I'm Paul Schwartz, and this is LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. So long.